0: If you don't mind, I would like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13 and want to begin by reading verses 16 through 18. And uh, if you don't mind standing with me as we do that, um, we don't do that necessarily out of religious obligation. We do that just to redistribute the oxyhemoglobins that are settling into, the, uh, into your buttocks and hopefully will redistribute around your body and make you alert and aware. Uh, He begins in verse 16, he's talking about the Antichrist, the beast, and he says, he also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name, And this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is a man's number, and his number is 666. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we come to your word that your Holy Spirit would come to us in in fresh new understanding and insights. We don't want to come to new truths. There is no such thing. There is the truth, the absolute truth. But Lord, we want to understand it in new ways as it applies to our life. And so we ask God for a moving of your spirit far beyond the ability of my mind or ability to communicate. We ask for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When Jesus' disciples asked him in Matthew 24, 3, uh, what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age, <clears throat> he began by warning them not to overinterpret world events. In other words, to read into them what's going on around us more than is justifiable. In fact, he began by telling us that there are certain things that are going to be bad, but they're going to be normal bad. Uh, He intimated, for example, in the story of the 10 virgins in chapter 25 and the 10 talents that uh, his coming would not happen right away. He says, for example, in verse five of chapter twenty-five, the bridegroom was gone was gone a long time, or again in uh, verse fourteen, that he would go away on a long journey, intimating that the idea that he was going to come in the next few weeks was not what he was trying to communicate. But secondly, he explained that his that life on earth would progress pretty much as it always had been ever since the fall of mankind. In verse 24 and verse six, he says, when reports come in of wars and of rumored wars, keep your head, don't panic. This is routine history. There, this is no sign of the end. Nation will fight against nation and ruler fight ruler and over and over famines and earthquakes will occur in various places. There's nothing, this is nothing compared to what is coming. So oftentimes people will cite earthquakes or things of that nature as being signs that we are in the end times. Jesus said, no, that's just the nature of life on planet earth. But he does make a distinction and that's how he answers the question. So how could they know that the end was near? And there are certain things that stand out. He begins by telling them that when it comes, it's going to come suddenly and unexpectedly. In 1 Thessalonians 5:3, he says, sudden destruction comes upon them as labor's pains come upon a pregnant woman. So the image of a pregnant woman is helpful in understanding because when a woman begins to go through the gestational process, it becomes evident that either she's eating a lot on the side or else she's actually bearing a child. And she, her belly swells and things are changing. Her body is adjusting to what is coming. But then comes the labor pains. And so it's not that we don't see the world getting worse and worse because Jesus said it would get worse and worse. But the thing is, we're not at the end until we begin to see those things become extremely intense in a very sudden and unexpected way. But secondly, he said it's going to be a time that's unprecedented. In other words, there's no historical reference point you can look to and so say, oh, this is just like when. In fact, in verse 21 of Matthew 24, he said, there will be great misery such as there has never happened from the beginning of the world until now and never will happen again. So it's an especially horrific time. It won't be a place where there's just evil or bad things happening in places. It's something that is going to encompass the entirety of the globe. And the thirdly, it's going to be a time that therefore will be terribly upsetting. In Luke 21, 25, he says, nations will be in anguish and perplexity. The word perplexity means a problem without any parent solution. In other words, the world will be facing difficulties that are terrible, and yet nobody has an answer, which I believe will be the entree for the beast or the Antichrist. He says, even men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what's coming upon the world. But lastly, as Daniel explained, it would be also a time of unprecedented or unparalleled and exponential change. He says to Daniel in Daniel 12, 4, he says, seal up the book until the time of the end. In other words, the prophecy won't make sense until you come into the end times and then suddenly it will become obvious in its meaning. And he adds, <clears throat> many will rush here and there, the idea that people will be transporting around the world at an incredible pace that had not been seen previously in human history. And knowledge will increase, and the increase there implies exponential knowledge increase. In other words, that knowledge throughout human history has stayed pretty level-level until the time in which we live. It's estimated that the amount of information, just published information, has increased in the last 50 years by 200 trillion times, which is a pretty amazing growth in information. So in saying all this, we look at our world, and what do we see? Yes, as we study history, we find things have continued on for thousands of years without little substantial change, Up until what we now refer to as our modern time, the travel was slow. The average speed of travel was four miles an hour. Whether you were walking or you were uh, riding on a ship, actually, sail ships traveled about four miles an hour. That's why it took a long time to get places. The reason they sailed across the ocean, because it was hard to walk across it. But it wasn't a whole lot faster. Uh, Secondly, the communication and information was extremely limited. Most people did not write, did not read. It was a very elite class of scribal people who held that role. There was, existence was subsistence. In other words, people planted to eat the food. But if you had three years of drought, many people died from famine and disease that followed it. So there wasn't these huge stockpiles of food that they could find down at Fred Meyer. And finally, life itself was short. Average life expectancy is 25, 35 years of age. That's why if you reached 60 years of age, you were considered aged. In fact, there was a time capsule that was opened at the centennial in, in Colorado some years back now, and it had a newspaper from the day the time capsule was put in the ground, and in it, it had a lead article about a woman, an elderly woman who had been murdered, and they gave her age as 45. So you realize the concept of what it meant to be elderly was difficult, different because people didn't live that long. But that all began to change around 1800 in what came to be known as the industrial revolution. And we are now in what we call the fourth stage of the industrial revolution or industrial revolution 4.0 is the way we refer to it since everything seems to be taking on computer technology. But basically, it began with water and steam power being used to manufacture. And we suddenly see the creation of this thing called the factory, moving from the home and the shop where families assembled goods and were craftsmen to moving into the idea of a factory in a city that was able to produce more work because of the power of first water and then the harnessing of steam power. This led, secondly, to 2.0 in the Industrial Revolution, which was electrical power. Suddenly, there was large-scale manufacturing and distribution, and suddenly the machinery itself became more usable and more flexible and more efficient because of this new energy resource that had been harnessed to help push industry. And so what really changed was not so much the manufacture as the scale of manufacturing and transportation. And then came 3.0 in the, technolo- in the revolution, the technological revolution. Suddenly the factory is now has computers and we're beginning to see robotics. And this was a huge change. Even today when we look at the impact of 3.0 in the tech- industrial revolution, making cars has, requires half as many people as it did in the very beginning. So when Ford had his assembly line filled with men who had machines that suddenly simply moved things down the assembly line, has been replaced to a large degree by robotic machines that do a lot of the things that were once done by men, and they do it a lot better. But this was the third level, the technological revolution, which many of us assume is where we are today. But we're not. We're moving very quickly away from that into what we call 4.0, the fourth level of the industrial revolution, which is referred to as cyber physical systems. And this is a consequence of a lot of major changes that have happened in computer technology, when we'll get to it in a moment, but talking about things like the Internet of Things, uh, cloud computing, uh, smart factories, and on and on it goes, that suddenly we find that there's a melding together of technologies which is going to have the sum effect of reducing the number of people who were working in factories and warehouses and who were involved, so that even when we talk about cyber technology, whereas when you built a car in, uh, in uh, uh, Detroit or wherever it was, you had to begin with a concept. There were artistic ideas and renderings, and then models had to be made, and prototypes had to be produced, and on and on it went. Now, all of that work can be done on the computer, So that immediately, uh, essentially, the entire vehicle is designed by computer, then that is put into uh, analytics and uh, algorithms that are inputted into the machines, and the machine automatically begins to produce the car, reducing the time, reducing the cost, reducing the expense dramatically. In fact, just in Europe alone, they estimate that they will save over a trillion dollars a year in manufacturing costs by eliminating all of these steps, all these jobs. And um, what's interesting in all of that, of course, is they save and give us the opportunity to share that savings with both ourselves and with the consumer. Okay. (laughs) And I have a bridge. Uh, Anyway. But we see this evidence all around you. If you, you know, haven't noticed it, it's, it's everywhere to be seen. I mean, When we talk about communications, uh, I just think about, you know, my wife and I got, it was, it was a surprising thing. We, once again, for the umpteenth time, saw our, our cable bill go up for no explainable reason. So we found that rather than trying to talk to somebody in India, we would go downtown and, and, and talk to somebody. And so we said, what's the deal? And they said, oh, yeah, it's my mistake. We'll adjust that. Uh, I just wonder how many times a mistake becomes intentional. I don't know. But anyway, so they made that adjustment. They said, here, we're just going to give you a new box. And I said, what's that going to cost? Nothing. It's yours, free of charge. Uh, Okay, so we took it home. I hooked it up. And even I was able to walk through the steps and get it operational. I'm pretty impressed with myself. (laughs) Had to be able to put the number in the right box. It was amazing, you know. And I'm sitting here, and suddenly I have this thing that I just talked to. I just tell it, I want to see this, this show, that show. And you look at those little things and they become incorporated in our life. I'm telling you, I'm loving this now. Don't, don't, I, I'm loving it. I, and I've got a mark and everything. No, I'm loving this. But let me tell you, it, it's, it's changing just about everything. When we talk about our smartphones, And we'll get into some of these things a little more specifically, but you realize that smartphones are really smart. They're smarter than you are. So that even our accessing of information has changed. You see, we see it within our currency that only at the most has ever 16% of money actually been printed on paper. But the rest, and even more so today, it's all digital. So that even people are saying, well, you know, I'm buying gold, I'm buying silver, and, they, uh, and all this stuff. The reality is that you're buying it in digital form. Very few of us really have it actually in our possession. When we think about the ubiquitous nature of credit cards and debit cards and other banking forms, in fact, it has grown so much that uh, last year, Wells Fargo closed 84 branches this year, they're going to close 200 bank branches, and the following year, they're going to close another 200. Almost 500 banks, Wells Fargo banks, are going to close. Why? Well, their CEO says they're accessing online, on mobile, through 18Ms and over the phone. We don't need to have bank buildings anymore because it's all happening online. And as I say this, I know some of you are saying, yeah, I do that. I know I do it. Well, actually, my wife does it. I don't understand it. But, but when we talk about commerce, we are living in a global market. So that when I talk about this being one world economy, the reality is we have been in a one world economy for a very, very long time. That there, uh, we are borderless on so many levels already in the transport of goods, both sold and bought and manufactured and so forth, that I, I went online and I just saw, thought, you know, I wonder how many American businesses there are uh, that have really relocated in other countries. And I had 14 pages. I counted over a thousand different companies, some of the biggest ones in this country, who are almost, are, are largely, if not completely, operational. Many household names that we think about as being American companies no longer see themselves as part of America. They're part of the global economy and are doing business around the world. And so see themselves put building their main centers in places that are really, really bizarre like Tokyo or London or Wichita. Places that are really off the grid. But also smart stores. And I find smart stores are probably the easiest ways for us to really begin to get it. And I have a great story. You may have heard it. I may have told before. I can never remember. That's the way my memory is. But there was a story I read recently of a, a gentleman who worked in, in Stockholm in Sweden. And he came home from work, and when he got home, his wife said, would you feed the baby? Well, he lived 40 miles outside of Stockholm, so he went to the cabinet, he took a jar of baby food down, and he was going to take the top off. It slipped out of his hand, hit the floor, and broke, and thought, oh, well. So he cleaned it up, went to the cabinet, no more baby food in the house. Had to get back in his car, drive 40 miles back to Stockholm to find a store, buy baby food, drove back, and then took care of his duties. But it it was the beginning, the genesis of an idea. He just thought to himself, there's no store in our village, so I will build one. And what he did is he built a store, which is a smart store, so that regardless, it's open 24 hours a day. But there's nobody that works there. You simply go up to the door, you put your thumbprint, because you're pre-registered, into the scanner. The door opens and automatically registers your entrance into the store. It has smart shelves, so you take things that you want, you put them into your basket. It automatically charges your account. If you change your mind and put it back, it automatically deducts it from your account. And essentially, you pack up everything you need, you walk out the door, and it's a done transaction. action. Your c- account has already been debited, and you go home with your goods. Open 24 hours a day, nobody works there. Wow, those Swedes, they're, they're interesting, except Amazon is opening up their first smart store this year in Seattle. The first of what's going to be 20 grocery stores. Now, right now, my daughter, who lives in Bellevue, receives her groceries from Amazon. They deliver it to her front door every day. You know, she just goes online, orders what she wants, and it comes, and there's this bag hanging. In fact, she's got hundreds of these totes And you think, wow, that's crazy. But it's going to be more than that. They're opening up hard stores where people will walk in and do exactly that. They will simply register as they come through, whether it's through a handprint, a palm print, through eye recognition, because half of you actually in this room are already in the federal government's database. Your facial recognition has already been recorded. 50% of Americans, I know for sure I am, (laughs) Because I utilize it going in and out of the country all the time. So that essentially they have all sorts of different platforms that they can use to recognize who you are, that, that you go in the store and exactly it works the same way. And as again, Amazon said they're going to open 200 of these stores. How many people work in these stores? A couple a technician and somebody to make sure that there's law and order. That's it. It's going on and on. I mean, it's. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I find also there's this whole issue we talk about the smart grid, and, and it's an interesting idea that we talk about living in the world of the Internet of Things. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. But this was a, a change that was really started by the government because the United States government was looking at war, field, war uh, battlefield technology. And somebody came up with a really, really clever idea. They said that if we can really spray an entire battlefield with RFID chips, little tiny, what they call micro dust. And we can put sensors on our soldiers' uniforms that as they enter into the back battlefield, we can monitor every single soldier's movement and position and also read any incoming enemies that are coming onto the battlefield as well. So you can think about the idea of playing a video game and I, I confess I've never played one, so I'm guessing, but things like Mortal Kombat or something where you're doing this virtual battle going on, literally that is the concept. Actually, they're taking it a step forward, further. Far. Now, Right now, DARPA, which is the organization that develops a lot of advanced military technology, is designing robotic soldiers that will eliminate live combat in the field. They're already well down the road in eliminating piloted aircraft. So that we realize that this is all based upon the idea of uh, how do we communicate that information that's traveling. And that's where the problem of the current internet, the ip 4 version 4, runs into problems. Because, see, currently IPv4, which is the system that runs most internets, uh, only has 4 billion addresses. And you realize we have over almost 7 billion people on the planet. That means that address is assigned to whatever device you're using, whether it's your your smartphone or your laptop, your computer at home, or whatever it is. It has an IP address that's your address, and it sends everything that's for you to that address, and that's how you get your email. So they said, we need to expand that, and it's really developing beyond anything I can really comprehend, into IP version 6, which is an interesting number. But this is where the Internet of Things comes into being because instead of having you each, each computer having its own address, it turns out that everything has an address, including you. That in other words, when you go and, and, and sit down at a computer in a hotel in some place, all you have to do is simply put your hand on the scanner or your thumb on the scanner and immediately it downloads all of your information. That computer now becomes your computer. You don't have to log in. You don't have to log out. It's yours everywhere you go. The clothes that you wear will have a chip in it so that wherever that shirt or pants or goes in the world, they know where it is and and where it has been and who bought it and so you go to Goodwill, you know, I mean, you could probably cut the chips out if you could find them, but they're getting so microscopic, so tiny, they're, they're called dust now, that even just finding them without some kind of RFID reader or something may be a challenge. But the idea is this becomes totally ubiquitous, that everywhere and everything becomes a receiver for technology. Now, the problem is that there's so much data that has to be gathered and processed and sorted that there is not a computer system that's up to the task. And suddenly we find that we're entering into the age, Google now has launched what they call quantum computing, The biggest part of it was creating a gateway that could sort, and they just developed that last year, a gateway that can take the information and sort it. The difference with quantum computing from ordinary computing is it's, well, to coin a political phrase, it's huge. Uh, Think about 100 million times faster than any computer on the planet. So that it does not simply take data and go through it and sort it. It looks at the entirety of the data and sorts it instantaneously. So, for example, a search on the internet that could have taken uh, a few minutes. You might have watched the clock spinning as it was sorting through and go looking through Google or Safari or whatever your, your search engine is. Suddenly, that goes from just a few seconds to being instantaneous, faster than I can smack my fingers. The information is right there. And you can get very, very specific in your sorts and it'll give you exactly what you want without having to go through a whole lot of other stuff. This has a huge ability to enable the Internet of Things to become functional on a daily basis. And that's why we find even like people like Google are using it to sort your information. It's a little bit creepy, is it? I mean, I, I was looking for a, a hotel in Amsterdam, and, and I finally I just clicked on and said, send me price updates on this one particular good deal. And every so often it just pops up. But that's even worse. I was looking for a, a piece of computer... Uh, basically a USB charger and now I get wherever I look I get pop-ups on the side of my page showing me somebody's USB charger that I didn't even ask to look at but it's interesting (laughs) so that it knows me it's learning me it has remembered everything that I do and it's searching out and continually communicating with me and that's happening to all of us. It's pretty frightening if you get a chance sometime to get a look at what they know about you. My son just sent it over to my wife. She logged on to this site and said, is this you? And she put her name in and suddenly it had everything. I mean everything about her. And then they were saying, if you pay us, we'll remove it. Now here's the catch. They'll remove it from their site, but they can't remove it from where they got it. It's still out there, it's it's still out there in the cloud, it's still out there in the NSA's computers. They've got it all stored there, It's, it's not going away. But how interesting is this? Think for a moment right now. You're able to see what's going on here because the room is illuminated. Let me tell you a little story. About a year and a half ago, our utility contacted us and said, you know, if you switch all of your lighting to LED. We'll give it to you for free. Well, when you calculate it out, we have 1,700 different light bulbs in this building. (laughs) $27,000 it would cost for us to buy it, and they just gave it to us. We had to install it. Well, Ron had to install it, but nonetheless, it had to be installed. And the, the amazing thing about it is it cut our electrical bill by 90%. It's amazing. I mean, we went from paying $5,000 a month to uh, just, I forget, maybe, uh, I think we're paying about, well, we're 12, we're down to $2,500 a month for electricity. That's 90,000 square feet, so there's a lot of space here to light, you know? But if you look at this, you think, wow, this is so nice. You know, that's the one thing I love about this utility company. They're so generous. They're so, why would they do that? Well, then I discover that there is a thing called Li-Fi. We all know Wi-Fi. That's how we connect. But Li-Fi operates off of LED lights. And that's why LED, one of the reasons LEDs are taking off. Not only do they save energy, and they're very efficient, and they're brighter. You know, they to use 10% of the electricity, and they give you 10% more lighting, and they last uh, several hundred times longer. They're a great concept. I have nothing against that. But it also opens up the idea that we can be connected any place where there's a light. In fact, they're even developing a car headlight that you can be out in the wilderness and you can connect to the internet by just turning in the lights of your car and reading off of it. I mean, I don't understand the science behind all of that. I'm just telling you it's what's happening. And that's where we find that even those clever devices that are coming into our homes, the Nest thermometers that we can buy that learn our patterns and begin to adjust the heat and the cooling to our daily patterns and how we live our lives. Or we can get an Echo or a Alexis. That was a hot item this Christmas. And you can ask it questions. And although... And the same thing is true with Siri and the other devices that you can talk to and they give you answers and you have a virtual conversation with. But the interesting thing about it is, is that they're not just transmitting information, they're also listening and receiving information. In fact, the Israeli military just had uncovered a, a a plot by Hamas that basically they had sent social meeting posts to many of their IDF soldiers. And usually it was a very attractive young woman saying, hey, I saw your profile and would like to get to know you. I'd like to get to know you. Yes, I would. Anyway, so, you know, most 18, 19-year-old boys go hubba hubba. <laughs> and they click and they connect. And they discovered that what the app did when it was downloaded and labeled them, to watch and to hear everything that soldier is Not only know his location, but know what his conversations were, what instructions he was giving by his commanders, even when his phone was turned off. That's Hamas. That's not the U.S. government. Amazing technologies. In fact, there's even a court case right now where the police are, are uh, attempting to subpoena The records from one of the Alexis listening devices that people bought for Christmas because they think they can, if they can get to the database, they have the records of a murder that took place that the machine was probably recording as the conversation was going on and they can use as evidence in the case. And then there's the whole issue of biometrics, which has such promise to it because biometrics, medical monitoring that can be done. I think uh, Bob Allen was telling me, you know, he just had heart surgery last year, and he basically goes to the doctor, and they just tell him what the readout is because of the chip that they put in his heart. Right? They come in, and they say, okay, this is what your blood pressure is, this is what... (laughs) The whole profile is." He doesn't even have to come in because it's connected. He just has to be someplace where there's an internet so they can connect. And they follow. And it's going beyond that because even a a case of a a young woman who had just a chip taped onto her, we'll get into that, the digital tattoos, and she had a problem pregnancy. Instead of spending hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars, of keeping this woman in the hospital because of her problem pregnancy so that she could be monitored and watched 24 7, they could send her home and they simply monitor her from home by the internet, by reading this, and it gives all the information that they would be getting otherwise if she was still in the hospital. Helping to drive the cost of medical care way down and giving them immediate results because the algorithms are set up to, unlike the machines that have to make loud noises and get the attention of somebody, these automatically send alerts to the cell phones of those who are the attending physicians and nurses on that particular patient. So it's more immediate and more, better attention. But where we are going uh, today is, is, uh, and I think the place where we're going to feel the greatest and most immediate impact is with money itself. And it's here that John's prophecy, I think, becomes the most insightful. uh, When he says no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark which is the name of the beast or the number of the name. I would just like to begin by saying there's some of you who are saying, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to live off the grid so that they can't do this to me. What it says is no one, no one will be able to buy or sell. So, I mean, uh, anytime I think we decide that we're going to outsmart the devil, we're at a disadvantage. And I think it revolves around that second word, smart. He's a heck of a lot smarter, shrewder, and capable than you are. And essentially, it's going to be set up so that whatever you do outside of the system will automatically make you a criminal and the object of arrest and consequences. So it's, um, it's I don't think the answer is to avoid it altogether. I think what this statement also implies is that there is coming a universal currency system that has maximum control, and is something that only today is possible. In other words, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, we looked at these prophecies, 20 years ago, we looked at these prophecies and said, well, this could happen, that could happen, but we don't really know how it would be possible for the entire world to be tied into this economic system. We have to understand that every country has a currency. I remember the first time I went to India and I was really kind of, somebody was supposed to meet us and they got confused. We came at 2 a.m. and they thought we were coming at 2 p.m. And so, you know, that a.m. p.m. thing, you know, time zones and stuff, it really throws us off. Anyway, so we show up, three of us show up at the airport in New Delhi and we don't know what's going on. We don't know anything. We have nobody to guide us through. And I remember finally, we walked out of the airport, and I found a bus that would take us to the domestic airport, and I tried to offer him American currency, and he just looked at me like I was handing him scrap paper. You see, he didn't recognize the currency, had no value to him, so I had to go back in and exchange my currency to get Indian currency so that I have rupees that I could pay the bill with. That's a simple illustration, but that's the whole point. In one place money can be valuable, in another place it becomes non-valuable. And we think that you can go with dollars any place in the world, there are lots of places where you can't. It has no value, it's just paper to them. And My point is simply this, the value of currency is what we apply it to, and if at some point we say it no longer has a value, it stops being valuable. India just did this. India just basically, Prime Minister Modi said, After this date, 1,500 rupee notes are worth nothing. So you have to come in and exchange them for our new currency or else you will lose your currency. And the purpose behind that was to kind of find all this hidden money that people were hiding from the government and weren't paying taxes on, estimated to be in the billions if not trillions of dollars. And so it worked because essentially... If you don't make the exchange, you're left with scrap paper. What I'm saying is that the idea (laughs) of hiding your money under the mattress uh, isn't worth anything if the government suddenly decides to say, well, that's no longer worth anything. We did this in this country when we eliminated silver certificates. And suddenly they became collector items, but nothing of any currency value. In fact, if you have a $20 gold coin from the 1900s, or the uh, 1800s, do you know what that's worth? A lot, as long as you're selling it illegally, (laughs) because it's contraband. You can no longer have that legally unless you buy it through a vendor who is selling directly to collectors. So you find that government has the power to render those resources invaluable just by fiat. We're already moving towards a cashless society, right? Uh, International Business Times said basically, our children born today will be the first cashless generation and will frequently use their smartphones in exchange for goods and services. Not just our kids, I do that. Do you know I buy things off my smartphone? It's amazing to me. I I love this technology. I just put my thumb on the reader and it automatically works just like a credit card. I don't have to sign anything. I don't have to even put it over a reader. I just put my thumb on it. It's a taken care of. A CBS Money Watch actually said that 57% of Americans polled say they never carry cash. That would be me. (laughs) My grandkids, grandpa, how can you ever have any money? I said, grandma won't give me any. (laughs) I mean, I just hate bothering with it. I hate bothering with cash. It's bulky. It's just a pain. 17% say they sometimes carry money. So right now, today in America, 75% of Americans don't rely upon cash. In fact, they found that only 10% of you actually do most of your purchases through cash. If you don't think that's you, step back and watch your spending habits for a while, and you'll suddenly discover it's a credit card, it's a debit card, it's an online purchase. It doesn't actually involve the exchange of currency. The Guardian says in Sweden today, only 2% of transactions are made by cash, and they expect that to go to a half a percent by the end of this year. They're just becoming a cashless society. And why is this happening? Well, governments and banks really want this to happen. In fact, they're not thinking about it. They're actually going to do this. This is going to happen. Uh, As I said, India, basically, they want to address the issue of crime, uh, problems of counterfeiting currency. North Korea prints billions of dollars of counterfeit $500 bills that they distribute around the world every year. Get rid of that, and they're no longer able to counterfeit. There's uh, smuggling of currency. Uh, The European Union wants to get rid of the 500-euro note because it can be carried. Large amounts of money can be smuggled across borders without any indication. They can hide it inside of a briefcase or a suitcase or something even smaller. There's the issue of laundering of money. So that you carry it into another country to exchange it for that currency in that country. It goes into the banking system and you've hidden what you've done. You walk away with the currency that you're free to use now. Or there's the issue of the black market. Lots of underground businesses take place where there's exchange of goods using currency to exchange things. You take away currency and it all has to be digital because then it goes up into the cloud. You can no longer hide those transactions. There are a lot of compelling reasons. People aren't going to come and and rob you as easily. And In fact, they're saying this is the beautiful thing when people go up to the ATM and they punch in their code and suddenly it gives them a number and they can put that into the the ATM. The ATM gives them the currency they want. They said the chances of a person being robbed go down precipitously. And then there's the issue of terrorism. How do you really stop terrorism? You defund it. You defund it. ISIS will disappear overnight if they no longer have money. It's that that simple. Al-Qaeda goes away if they no longer have money. So the issue here is we can control crime if we can control the flow of currency. And that's really what it's all about. Crime is a big issue, but really for the banks more than anything else, more than their concern for crime and government's concern for is their ability to control money and its flow. You see, right now in many countries like Japan and Sweden uh, and Switzerland, the interest rate on your money is negative. If I put $100 in those banks, I will pay them a dollar to keep my money for me. So what do people do? Smart people saying, that's crazy. I'm going to go and pull my money out of the bank. Suddenly, the bank has a crisis because there's been a run on the bank. So how do you get around that? Well, first of all, you can't have a run on digits. You can transfer this money to this bank, but they all operate within the same system. So the banks have a huge interest in going to this thing because it also gives them optimal control over how much they lend and at what rate so that there's no longer going to the government, having the government turn on the the printing press and printing currency. They just simply walk up to the keyboard and say, we have this many assets available and we will allocate it accordingly at this interest rate. Governments love this because you can no longer hide your taxes from them. If all of your income comes in digitally, you don't even have to fill out a tax form anymore. They know exactly what you made, and they know exactly what they want. So that this essentially becomes a way in which they avoid people hiding tax dollars and all the rest because it's all recorded on the cloud, and that's why, in many ways, people saying, well, I'm just going to save up a lot of silver and gold, so if that day comes, I can use that. Well, you'll have to use it in an underground, black market, illegal way. And you'll have to find people who want to take your gold or take your silver because what are they going to do with it? And they have to have an illegal fence to sell it to so that it becomes part of the criminal enterprise. And unless you're prepared to be part of that, It becomes very, very difficult. It's a hard way to live. Taxes will get paid. Fees will be collected. Now, people like you and me are pretty resistant to losing control over our money. If you're not, come and see me. I I can help you out. Um, And you wonder, how are they ever going to convince people to go along with this? Uh, remember, I quoted David Rockefeller. Let me give you the full, full, full uh, part of his quote now of what David Rockefeller, the president of Chase Manhattan Bank and founder, co-founder of the Trilateral Commission and a number of other uh, supranational organizations. He said the supranational sovereignty, in other words, this is a sovereignty, a governorship, a rulership of the world that's above nations. Sovereignty that's ruled by an intellectual elite and world bankers. Okay, that's the picture. A group of intellectual elites and world bankers is surely preferable to the national auto-determination, hashtag democracy, of a practice in past centuries. We are on the verge of a global transformation and all we need is a right major crisis and the nations will accept this new world order. As I mentioned last week that I believe these intellectual elites and the world bankers and and many others, intellectual elites kind of a hashtag for a lot of people in powerful places in industry and government and so forth have been working hard through many avenues. Most recently, I think, through the United Nations, particularly because of our current presidents or outgoing presidents' empathy and and attraction to the United Nations. Um, But things like climate control is really kind of an oxymoron. How do you control control the climate? I mean, the reality is that uh, it's all about controlling energy it's all about, which is going to be the new medium of wealth. It's the new gold rush, is energy. So how do you control energy? And, and the idea is that suddenly you have this ultra-national organization that distributes and decides how things are distributed equally so that wealth might be distributed equally upon the face of the earth. If you read through the UN's Agenda uh, 2030, it's very eye-opening if you get through all the legalese because the objective is to not only bring world peace and to save the planet, but it's also to redistribute wealth equally amongst all the residents of the planet so that we can eliminate poverty. There's no more poverty. Well, Jesus said, the poor you'll always have with you. So basically, it, they reject the whole idea that God says that there is always going to be inequity in a fallen world and think that they can fix it. They, and so I think that climate change is a faux crisis. Terrorism has been an opportunity to increase government's control of peoples and of cities so that when we have things like the NSA and, and their gathering of unbelievable amounts of data, which was illegal and has never led to any kind of consequences, but they have huge, huge uh, uh, databases out in the Utah desert collecting and holding all of this information that is not, you know, you have to have a subpoena to check it. But they can check it whenever they want. If you add to that another crisis that didn't get touched in the last election at all, but should have been, at least on the level it should have been, was the issue of joblessness or the elimination of jobs. That artificial intelligence and robotics will lead to the elimination. The estimate is it's going to lead to the elimination in the next 20 years, or let's say by 2030, which is less than 20 years. Get this. It's going to lead to the elimination of $2 jobs. Half the world's total jobs, there's four billion jobs in the world, half of them will be eliminated. That means a million jobs a year are going to be going away. Will there be new jobs created? Yes, there'll be new jobs for those who have the technical skills. If you're trained in in science, technology, uh, engineering, or mathematics, uh, there's opportunities for that. If you're trained in philosophy, Well, I'll go into education. Well, I hate to give you the bad news because that's part of what's going away. The power industry is increasingly being automated. Transportation, as we find driverless cars, within five years you're going to find that the trucks that are delivering the goods to the source are not being driven by people. Even the planes that you ride, right now, if you get an airplane, fly across the country or across the street, whatever, uh, only 7 to 8% of the time is the pilot actually piloting the plane at takeoff and at landing, and even that is assisted by computers. But the rest of the flight is all being run by computers, and those guys are sitting up there, hopefully sober and drinking coffee. But if they're not sober, well, that's the nice thing about a robot. know. <laughs> Unless his name's Hal. But bottom line is uh, everything. We, we're, talking, we're going to you about guys who are working with Uber, great deal, but your job is going away. Uber is, per, you know, is pursuing it pretty hard. And, and Lyft is another alternative, which is owned by Microsoft. So essentially, we're going to find that it's, it's going to eliminate all these jobs that went into that. And there will be other jobs. I don't know that they'll be the same. As we talked about manufacturing with robotics and 3D printers, is increasingly going to be run by machines. I it was interesting, you can go online, there's a video of Amazon's factory over in Seattle where you order your goods. There are no people, it's all machines. There are no people, it's all machines. I mean, I, I sat there and watched all five minutes of this video, <laughs> didn't see a person in the building. But they're in there fulfilling orders, taking things off shelf, moving things around. getting. And the thing about it is they get it right every time. You know, you order a pair of binoculars, you're gonna get binoculars. You're not gonna open up and find a thong. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's safe, it's wonderful. Boy, it's efficient. And you know, that's the nice thing about those robots, they never go on strike, they have no health car, care costs. Um, they work 24 hours a day and they never complain. They don't even drink the coffee. farming is increasingly being transferred the small farmers going out of business is being replaced by robotic farms But not only in Israel, which is in the forefront of of robotic and and AI farming, has now where they don't even have to go into the fields. They put sensors into the ground that tells them how much moisture is there, what the condition of the soil is, what the nutrient value is, what is the best crop that they can plant there, when they should plant it, when to water. It automatically will water according to the need of each individual plant, rather than just simply saturating a field. And then when it comes to the harvesting, they just turn on the automatic harvesters. When I was down in California a while back, I was stunned to see olive trees that were square, big olive trees and they're perfect kind of rectangles. And they have this machines that they simply just drive through the field and automatically pick the fruit off the tree efficiently without any loss or spoilage. But there was nobody working in the field. And this is increasingly the case with the, as we move more and more into industrialized farming, the farmers are going to be something of the past, so that maybe there'll be some little boutique farmers for the people who still can afford to go there, but the reality is most things are going to be simply planted, harvested, cared for, and so forth by machinery. Because in the long run, it's so much easier. So that when people started protesting McDonald's and saying we're going to we demand $15 an hour to make hamburgers, they said, "Okay, we get you. We hear what you're saying," and they immediately began the development of uh, stores that are run by robots, so that everything is cooked and the hamburger comes out perfect. The cheese and the meat are aligned perfectly, and that will eventually go and eliminate. Most of the people who, who work in there, in fact, to the point where you just simply go up there and punch in what you want and then wait for it to be delivered. There's actually a robot right now that can cook over 100 gourmet recipes, an in-home model probably for very wealthy people right now. But over 100 gourmet meals, that can. Print, and you just simply just punch in what you feel like having and it prepares it at the level of the best chef's. Even things like medicine right now that you go down to lens crafter and you won't find yourself talking to an optometrists anymore. They'll have you looking into a lens that will analyze your eyes and where they're at, their health, their needs, your prescription, as well as the very best ophthalmologist in the world. And even medical fields like that are going to find themselves losing positions because they have machines. Anything that is a, a, a repetitive, predictable system will be replaced by robotics because again it is cheaper and more efficient so that service industries even things like cleaning cooking fast food even construction i was just reading recently they've just developed a robot that builds brick walls replacing brick masons and uh, even 3d printers can create entire houses By just using a 3D printer, they can build an entire house that just needs to be taken out to the site and assembled, eventually even by the machines. But all of this is also added to a thing called the the problem of income inequality. In 1929, 1% of Americans owned 50% of the assets in the country. And what followed was the Great Depression. In 1973, that had equaled it out because of the war and because of the unions and a lot of other things. Suddenly, that 1% lost half of their assets in this country and 25% of Americans, or they now only own 25%. In in 2007, it reversed itself and those 1% now own, once again, 50% of the assets in this country. And the number continues to rise. And it's a very simple thing that happens. You see, as you and I work every day, our cost of living goes up even though our income doesn't. And so as a result, we have to spend and even borrow in order to keep up our standard of living, which we are encouraged to do so we can stimulate the economy. But people who are wealthy have the opposite problem. They're already living at a very comfortable lifestyle, maybe beyond anything you and I can imagine, and they have still excess income, and so they're investing that, and their incomes are growing rather than shrinking, and their lifestyle grows up with it. And this creates inequality in a culture that no nation has ever been able to survive. People will demand that there be a change. In fact, uh, the Guardian, uh, a London paper said, in short, there's a strong continuous correlation between the rich getting richer and the poor making that the 90% going deeper into debt. In fact, PBS NewsHour had an interesting article. He said that there are 80 people in the world, 80 people, 80 people. I'm talking about this little section over here. 80 people who own 50% of the world's assets. 80 people who own half of everything there is in the world. People are willing to trade freedom, power and freedom and liberty for safety, security. They're willing to do it. They've done it throughout history. Well, it was Solomon who at the time of the world, who was at the time, he was the world's wealthiest man who said in Ecclesiastes 10, 19, money is the answer for everything. One translator put it, money makes the world go round. It's the golden rule. Whoever controls the gold rules. In this case, the gold has been digitized and it's about controlling the flow and the distribution of wealth and power that comes with it because money is no longer money. Now it's digits. Which is what makes John's prophecy, I think, so very profound in its details because he describes an economic system that is only possible today that everyone will be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead the the karagma the word mark here literally means to engrave or to etch to stamp or impress uh, people have tried to figure out what this is even some people said well you're going to be tattooed or you're going to be branded or they come up with all basically they try to understand the mark of the beast based upon the current technology of the time but none of that seemed adequate or even come close and i'm not proposing that i know what the mark of the beast is But there are some amazingly tantalizing developments in the world. In fact, there's one Austin, Texas firm. They call themselves Chaotic Moon Studios. Uh, They're a research laboratory who has basically combined sensors with conductive paint, and they've begun to develop what they call tech tattoos. They turn body art into fully functioning health monitors. So it's really, this little sticker is actually, you can put it on there, it can, it can stay as long as you want. It doesn't wash off, but it also can be removed relatively easily. Just the right solvent comes right off, just like a, a piece of, of uh, scotch tape on your arm. Um, it's capable of monitoring a range of factors from your heart rate to your body temperature to your location. So you'll never get lost again even when you want to. Um, as one of the developers said, this is going to be on what the fitness tracker is. Uh, it says, this is something you can put on your body once a year that monitors everything a clinic would do in a physical and sends that to your doctor. No longer, no longer needing a yearly annual health checkup. It, they got all the data. They'll call you if you got a problem. If there's an issue, they can just call you, he says. And he goes on to say that it also can be used in banking, saying that keeping financial information attached to your skin would be less vulnerable than inside a loose wallet. It's a platform that basically turns you into a human circuit board, he said. This isn't science fiction. I mean, this is already technology that's in place. So if you put it all together, you have all the necessary ingredients for this one world economy. Uh, You've got quantum computing, the internet of everything, adhesive biometric tattoos that replace all your ID, all your money. I mean, in some ways, I love all this stuff. I mean, when I was coming back from Russia on my last trip, uh, you know, I've used for several years, ever since it first came out, a thing called Global Entry. And basically, I walk up to a kiosk while people are lining up to go through passport control. I just walk up to a, a kiosk, like a little vending machine. I put my passport in there. I put my hand on the screen. I look in the camera. It does a biometric re- recognition, a facial recognition. It recognizes my handprint. It reads my, uh, the data chip on my passport. And bam, it feeds me out a receipt, and I just walk out of the airport. No customs, no passport control. I timed it. It takes me seven minutes to get from the plane to the street. I love it. I remember the days of sitting for two hours in line, right? And as I'm flying back, the flight attendant looks at me and says, Well, do you use a uh, passport app now, mobile passport? I said, What? She says, Yeah, mobile passport. You, it's on your phone. You, you just basically take your phone, you scan. The, the chip on your, on your passport, it automatically reads it and sets it up so that when you go through, instead of even going through all of that other stuff, you just take your phone and you just put it on the reader. You know, like you check in to the airport when you get a flight, you can put your phone down and it reads your uh, boarding pass. Same thing, you just put it on the reader and you walk right out the door. It's even faster. Now you're three minutes from the door to the, to the street. And I'm flying, we're landing, and I'm Turning on my phone, illegally, (laughs) I download the app, and by the time I get off the plane, I'm ready to go. Walk right through, and through. Now, for a traveler, I love this stuff. But there are bigger implications, aren't there? Now, I know some of you are thinking that, uh, what about people in the underdeveloped world? You know, people in, in Kenya, I'm glad you asked. Because Microsoft, working with the Kenyan government, came up with a thing they call M-Pesa, which is a, a, a mobile service that allows Kenyans to store not only important documents like land agreements and all those things in the cloud so they can't be stolen or lost and their right to the prophecy, but also it enables them to do business they can do all of their banking and all of their spending so that when you're looking at a Kenyan who takes the simplest cell phone, an you know, old flip phone, any kind of phone will work. It doesn't have to be anything special. And they can actually start a business, they can borrow money because of a thing called blockchain banking. A blockchain is basically a block on the on the uh, on the internet, the cloud that that uh, consists of any kind of data storage, and you can set them up. And so, you guys, uh, Bitcoin uses the same technology. But now, even in the remotest places, if they have a cell phone and they have internet connection, they can do all their banking. Well, they don't even need that. They just have cell service. They don't even have have an internet connection. They can do all of their spending, their buying, their purchasing. And it's opening up huge opportunities, eliminating the banks as the middleman and all of that sort of stuff. And it's helping poor people in the world to be able to become entrepreneurs and start their own businesses. As it says in the article, that uh, uh, it keeps their savings in accounts, safe from criminals and wasteful spending, especially on the part of their husbands. Last thing I'll say, because I think I've gone a couple of decades past my time limit here. (laughs) Lynch mob is coming from children's building looking for me. Uh, There's a difference between a thing that's a sign of the time and sin. And we look at all this technology and go, well, my choice is I'm just opting out from the technology. And I, you know, I would just say that there's a lot of reasons why not to get too deep into technology, uh, personal and otherwise. I think it's not good for your health. But the real problem is not the technology but the consequence of what it means when the mark of the beast is implemented. In Revelation 14:9 it says then a third angel followed them shouting anyone who worships the beast and his statue or accepts his mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's wrath it is poured out undiluted into God's cup of wrath and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of holy angels and the lamb. The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever and they will have no relief day or night for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. The implementation of this takes place, as far as I can tell, in the middle of the great tribulation. And so it's not something that we are, I th- that you and I may be even subject to or are going to have to deal with if I'm right that the church is out of here before the tribulation starts. But at the same time, it's, it's like saying that money is evil. Well, money's not evil. It's what people do with it. It's a love of money that becomes the evil. The technology is not evil. It's what people do with the technology that becomes evil. And what I'm saying is the Antichrist is going to usurp this technology to create this system whereby he can control the universe. And part of the requirement is if you want to be able to participate in the economic system during the tribulation period, you're going to have to worship him as God. So for those of you who just are doing online banking, don't panic. You're not worshiping the Antichrist. But understand it's a sign of what's coming. And there will become a day where people will be given that choice. They can either worship him or be cut out of the system. And when they get hungry enough, most people will join the system. Father, I pray that uh, you would help us all to kind of collate this in our minds. I apologize to you and to them for taking so much time to cover this stuff. But I pray, Lord, that we would look at this. I go back to what Peter said. If these things are so, what manner of people ought we to live? Or how should we live? How are we living, Lord? Are we living like people who think that things are just going to continue on forever and nothing's going to change? Or are we realizing that we're living in the end of history as we know it and coming to the end of the age are we lifting up our eyes and and, and really looking to the heavens for our redemption or are we still trying to just figure out how to squirrel away nuts so that we can prosper I pray God that you'd help us to make that distinction in our mind in Jesus name Amen we're going to continue for well we still got a few extra minutes here so uh, we're going to continue on for a few moments in worship and Reflecting the Lord. And I just, I would just really, you know, ask you to just go back in your mind as we're spending this last time of reflection thinking about Peter's words, um, where he simply offers this, this challenge. He says, uh, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat and both the earth and all the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and in godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell.